Philippians 3, starting at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you, as you have us as model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. God, we just um, pray today that you would just set our eyes on you, firmly on you, that you would help us to remove our eyes as we do in the season of Lent, that we try to strip away things that would so easily distract us or um, get in our way of viewing you and viewing your story that you've laid out for us. I pray that those things would be easily stripped away from us, God, that you would protect and guard our minds today and that we would be able to set our minds on heavenly things. That you would continue the process of transformation that you've already begun in each and every one of us and that you've promised that you are faithful to complete. In Jesus' name, amen. So, by the way, hey everyone there on Zoom also. Hope you all are doing, having a lovely Sunday morning. Um, <clears throat> during this time of Lent, uh, this has just become a special time to me over the last few years. And we acknowledge, like one of the most important things to me in Lent is acknowledging where we are right now. And then we take time to step back and like find our place in God's story all over again. Because a lot of times as we go through life, it's easy for us to let the narrative of our world become the overarching narrative of our life. You know, we, we stop seeing as ourselves as part of a bigger story. We stop seeing ourselves as part of God's story. And we often see ourselves as part of how do I get my kids to stop screaming story? Or like, you know, how do I, uh, how do I pay the bills story, right? And so it's really important for us to be able to um, lay down a lot of the other narratives that come into our life, which is why many of us are fasting social media or, and media in general, like even just watching a movie, right? Like you get this other story and those stories can inspire us. Those stories can move in us. But we have all these different stories that are always kind of fighting for our attention. And so we just take the season to focus back in on one story, which is God's redemptive plan for mankind. Um, and so today we, be we began with this scripture from the Common Lectionary. So every week when you see Jordan get up here or some one, another one of us get up here, in Lent we actually preach from the, the scriptures given in the Common Lectionary every week. So the scriptures that we're preaching from here, there are, I don't even know how many churches, thousands and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of churches preaching these same scriptures on the, every same Sunday, okay? And so... 
Today is about perspective. So Paul points us to set our minds beyond earthly things, and we are to look forward to glory and to our transformation beyond what we can see. Not only the longing for our spirits to be transformed, but even, as Paul mentions in the scripture, for our bodies to be transformed even in God's full redemptive plan. So this is something that I really like to talk about. And so even the last several times that I've preached, I think in some way I've always kept coming back to the story of God's redemption for mankind. But not only for mankind, but for all his creation. So we even have the story of like the Garden of Eden, the earth gets messed up. And then we don't see this ending where God whisks us away to heaven. We see this ending where God restores and redeems his original creation of earth to back to his perfect plan. And we see in the story of mankind, see, a lot of us, we grew up with this idea, and I'll, I'll come back to this, but a lot of us, we grew up with this idea of like, we're getting saved so that our spirit can be saved, so that our spirit man can be redeemed. But I just want to tell you that God's plan is always bigger. His plan of redemption is always bigger than what you think it is. When we think we, do, we understand things that are divine, we always fall short. And so, we, we don't realize sometimes like that God's going to redeem our bodies. Is that because he can't make you a new body? No, it's not. It's because he wants to transform and redeem all creation. He's not trashing things and starting over. When we see, the, a lot of times we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, and we talk about them in such a way that the old covenant was bad, so God threw it away and made a new one. No, that's, that's not correct. It's a fulfillment and a redemption of the original plan back to God's intended purposes. Y'all with me? So, in accordance with that, let's look at our main text for today. This also comes out of the Common Lectionary. And uh, we're going to be in Luke 9. And we're going to be talking about uh, one of the coolest stories in the Bible. I mean, this is super baller. Like, the transfiguration, okay? This is like really up there on coolest stories. So maybe try to imagine yourself as being Peter or John or James in the middle of this story, okay? About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. For the record, I'll tell y'all what he said, okay? Because it starts on kind of like this ending to a cliffhanger or something. It says eight days after Jesus said this. What he says is he says, uh, some of you who are standing here will not see death until you've seen the Son of Man come in all of his glory, or something along those lines. There's a few different trends. A few, it's in three different books. And so that's what he says, and I've seen many different interpretations of this verse, but literally the next verse, I think we're getting a pretty obvious answer to what he's getting at, okay? So about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they're always sleepy, right? Like Jesus always asking them to go pray somewhere and then they're always sleepy. (laughs) These guys... They didn't have caffeine yet, I guess, which all of you are addicted to. I don't even like coffee. Y'all are all slaves to drugs, okay? I'm sorry. Let me get back on track. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. As always, he did not know what he was saying. Peter is basically us. Um, While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So if you've heard this story a million times, it's easy to kind of just let it go and not think that much about it. But it's pretty cool. Like, you know, you you read things like, we kind of just graze over scriptures like, when they entered the cloud, they were afraid. Like, no kidding. Out of nowhere, they're up on this mountain, and all of a sudden, the cloud starts coming around them, and they enter it. I'm like, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's probably scary. Um, This is an incredible scripture. So, I want to dive in here to to some of the things that I think God is doing, Um, And this is incomplete. I want you guys to understand when you look at the transfiguration, there is so much happening here. If you start cross-referencing the transfiguration to all these different parts of the Bible, I'm going to give you some of those things today, but there's, there's a lot more. Like the amount that God does with this one moment is pretty astounding. And I think that's one of the coolest things about God and about our um, privilege to be able to read scripture is the way that that the story is so intricately woven throughout scripture, that things are so interconnected between all these different writers over thousands of years. We still have these, all these perfect connections between um, what all the different people say. And so like, if you ever can just like take time and dive into that, to me, that's like, I don't know, that's the thing that maybe excites me the most about scripture, except for just the fact that I get to know God. So what is God doing of course, first of all, we start that it's, um, we have these three guys, and interesting moments always start when these three guys, when Jesus tells them, hey, let's go pray somewhere. Like, I feel like that's a signal of like something monumental is about to happen. Um, but I guess it probably, it probably happened a lot. They probably did it all the time where Jesus said, hey, let's go pray. But often in scripture, something's about to happen. Um, I feel like that one of the main things that God is doing in this story and I want to bring this up because, Randy, you talked about this morning, is he's just restoring wonder. I mean, like, we have these moments that God allows us to be part of, and he allows the disciples to be part of. And, I mean, I have to imagine he even allows Jesus to be part of, right? We think of Jesus as purely, you know, divine a lot of times, but Jesus, as the human man, he's trying to follow God's voice. And when he has this moment, I mean, this has to be even an overwhelming moment to the human Jesus, I would think. In this moment, we get a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, and we get a foreshadowing of the restoration and completion of all things. And I think that possibly this is God's primary point here, or one of them, is that we we get this glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, okay? So like they see Jesus, he starts, his face changes, he starts shining, it says his clothes take on the appearance of like lightning, okay? I think that what they're getting here is something like, a glimpse of what is to come of the resurrected Jesus. We're not there yet, but it's like God's showing them 
hey, you're, there's a bunch of stuff that's about to happen and it's going to be hard, but like, here's a glimpse of what's to come. And I think that God always does this with us. He always lays this kind of trail of breadcrumbs of like, hey, I know that you're human. And so I'm going to give you like this little bit of my glory here and this little bit of my glory here and this little bit of my glory here. Um, he doesn't necessarily allow us to stay and live in it all the time. I guess that's debatable of if we should be able to, but we'll see later in the scripture that Peter actually tries to. Peter's like, hey, how about we just build some tents and stay here? And, and Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. We're going back down from the mountain. Like we're going back down to do the work of, of the kingdom, but I need you to see this. So the disciples and Jesus even himself, which I hadn't ever thought of that. I had thought of like, oh, the disciples are getting this glimpse of what to come. But I hadn't, I don't know that I'd really contemplated like Jesus is getting a glimpse of what is to come. Um, and I just, I think that I can, I can commonly just glaze over his, his humanity and the difficulty that it must be for him to theoretically know what's coming, but to not have moments like this, you know? Um, and we get, like I said, and we get a foreshadowing of the restoration and completion of all things. So like I was saying earlier, I think that actually it's a really big deal that our bodies are transformed. I know this sounds like maybe it's a small point or a silly point to rest on, but I think that we, I so commonly think of like, oh, I'm going to be made perfect. I'm thinking of my inner man, like God is perfecting me. Um, but I think that this concept that God is going to restore all things, like even the things that are temporal, right? Even the things that are fleshly, um, that are a, quote, temporary home. They're kind of a temporary home, but they're kind of your perfect, they're kind of your eternal home because God's going to re perfect and restore your body. And so I feel like that even Jesus appearing to them in this resurrected body is a signal to them and a sign of what's to come this is my plan. I'm restoring all things, even the imperfect ones, okay? I also think that, um, that, like I was saying, God is just giving them a lot of encouragement for what's to come. If you look at what's about to happen, like the disciples are about to walk through a lot of really difficult times with Jesus. And of course, the crucifixion isn't really that far out, right? When, when we come to the time of Lent, we're basically walking with Jesus to the cross. And so we have this time where God's like, you know, um, the Bible says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, right? It, it doesn't say for the obligation or whatever. It says for the joy set before him. And I feel like that this is just like even a glimpse of that joy for Jesus. It's just like, here's what's coming. Don't forget what's coming. It's about to be really, really hard. Don't forget what's coming. And I feel like that this is something we're supposed to join into in the season of Lent, is that we intentionally lay down things in our life that make us comfortable. We intentionally lay down things that bring us outside joy. And we enter in this time of like waiting, of a time of like the not yet, right? A time of um, everything is not complete yet. And we kind of enter into the story. And so it can kind of be, when, when we started doing Lent for the first time, I kind of thought like, man, is this going to be depressing? You know, like it kind of seems a little like down and depressing because we're waiting till Easter to actually have this big party. And what about all that time in between? Like, I don't want to be depressed for 40 days, you know? And um, 
And I feel like that there is this important tension that we're to learn in the time of Lent, of this waiting, of this longing, of this actually resting in the discomfort and resting in the hard things and working through the hard things in ourself that pop up in the silence, right? We make space so that God can show us things, so God can bring things out inside of us that we're unaware of. And so we, this time is to deal with things like that, and it can be difficult. But just right at the beginning of it, God says, okay, but there is this like perfection of all things that's coming, and I want you to have a glimpse of it. Okay? So then Moses and Elijah show up, right? And some of you have probably, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school or whatever, you've probably heard people give some reasons of why Moses and Elijah showed up. There are a lot of them. Like even in doing kind of a deep dive to talk to you today, I found so many different like theological explanations for why Moses and Elijah show up. But I want to tell you a few of them that have like grabbed me the most over the years. And then if you want to go find more of them, you're welcome to do it. Um, First of all, I think it's really cool to know that the book of Malachi, which is the last scripture that these people have ever heard of essentially, right? Like we kind of have what we might call the silence of God speaking to the people of Israel for about 400 years between the time when Malachi finished penning his book and the time of Jesus. And so the Israelites are used to hearing from God. Like over time, it's their history as a nation that God guides them, God speaks to them, and they're really used to getting something. And this is the longest gap that they've had in a very, very, very long time of someone saying, this is what God says. And Malachi basically ends with an exhortation to, number one, to remember Moses, okay? And also to wait for the rebirth of Elijah to come and show up before the Messiah is going to come. So the last thing that they've ever heard, 400 years ago, it's been passed down to them. They know, all right, here's the last thing we've got to go on. Remember Moses, wait for the rebirth of Elijah, and then the Messiah is going to come. And so Moses and Elijah both show up, okay? And this is the last thing that they've ever heard of being passed down to them. So this probably gets their attention. We don't have this context. We didn't grow up living in Israel with all these passed down stories. But this probably gets their attention really quick when Moses and Elijah show up. And I I will also just throw in there that like Jesus actually tells them later that the second coming of Elijah referred to John the Baptist, the rebirth of Elijah. He says that that was John the Baptist. So, but either way, when these guys show up, it gets everyone's attention because that is the word that they're looking for. Secondly, Jesus proves what he is not, okay? Or God proves what Jesus is not, however you want to look at that. Jesus is not Moses or Elijah, okay? This is actually a potential problem Because people have been saying, who is this man? Maybe he's Moses, maybe he's Elijah. Because there have been rumors going around that Moses never actually died. And so people are like, oh, Moses is going to come back. He's going to finish giving us the law. We're going to actually go into the real promised land. Because we kind of had this thing where Moses didn't get to enter the promised land. He actually died. The scripture says he died. And then Joshua takes over and leads them into this promised land. But Israel is not really satisfied with the outcome of that. They don't think that it's the true ending. And they're right. There's still a Messiah to come. And so 
people have been saying, well, hey, maybe, maybe this is Moses come back to lead us, okay? And then there are also people, because Elijah didn't die. Do you guys remember the story? Elijah gets whisked off to heaven in a chariot of fire. Pretty rad exit. And, um, and so people have been saying, hey, maybe this is Elijah came back. This guy seems like a prophet, and he seems really powerful. The most powerful prophet we know of is Elijah. He didn't die. Maybe he's back to lead us. And so when Jesus appears with Moses and Elijah next to him, the disciples have proof this guy's not Moses and he's not Elijah. <clears throat> okay? So that seems like a silly thing to have to prove, but it actually was important in their day. Next, the, the symbolism of this, and you've probably heard someone say this before, is that Jesus fulfills both the law and the prophets. Okay, so the scriptures throughout, throughout history are divided basically into the law and the prophets. And the greatest representation of a person that would be the law is Moses because Moses is the one that God spoke to. Moses is the one that God gave the Ten Commandments to. He would go up and God would talk to them and he would come back down and he would talk to the people of Israel and tell them what God said, right? So Moses is the embodiment of the law. And Elijah is the embodiment of the prophets, so they had all these years of prophecies that would point to a coming Messiah, and they considered the greatest prophet to be Elijah. <clears throat> and so when Jesus appears um, next to these, it's, it's symbolically saying that he is the law and the prophets. He's, he is the fulfillment, not the abolition, okay? Not the abolition of the law, uh, but the fulfillment of the law. He is the completion of the law. He's the only one that could live perfect. He's the only one that could be a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice that could take away the sins of the world permanently instead of this temporary sacrificial setup they had going on, okay? So, so it's really important that Moses and Elijah show up because Jesus is the law and he is the prophets. He is those two things put together. Jesus says he is the word, right? We have all these scriptures that the word became flesh. In fact, we basically have all of this. If you, if you trace all the connections of scripture, then you kind of have this um, second round of creation. You have this second round of Genesis, where like in the original Genesis, uh, we have in the, be in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then when we start out, um, when we start out kind of a Genesis of the New Testament, we have in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God, okay? So for these Jewish people, they're putting together, um, they're putting together so many years of knowledge of law and prophecy and realizing that all these things are fulfilled in this one person, and he's standing next to them, and he's glowing, Okay? I hope we all get to glow one day. That'd be cool. So the next thing that happens with Moses and Elijah is they start to discuss, it says they start to discuss Jesus' departure. Okay? When they say departure, it's actually a really interesting word because they're talking about his death. But it's a word that is really rarely used in Scripture from what I've studied. I'm no, uh, I'm no Hebrew or Greek scholar, but I try to read people who are, and hopefully they're right, or else I'm lying to you, but it's not my fault. Um, so 
But this word apparently for death is not used that commonly in scripture. But this word that is like departure is actually the same word used for exodus. Like when the people had exodus from the land of Egypt, okay? So I just told you we kind of have a new Genesis with like Jesus as the word. And now we kind of have this new idea of exodus. It's a parallel to the Old Testament. And the disciples would have actually probably recognized this word when the people are even talking, when Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus. And you could say like, well, what are they talking to him about? I actually wonder if Moses and Elijah are even telling Jesus like, hey, like you're about to die, but like, it's going to be okay, man. <laughs> like, you know, like I wonder what this, uh, what this discussion is like. Um, but I think it's really cool that we have this idea that um, Moses led the people out of, out of Egypt and to a new promised land, right? And actually, he didn't take them into the promised land. You know who did? Joshua. You know another name for Joshua? Yeshua. Okay? So we have Yeshua, Jesus, the, the new Moses and the new Joshua, who's going to take people, lead people into a new covenant and a new way of life and a new promised land. Okay? So like these things are really intertwined. So then Peter jumps in, right? And we all, I think we all love Peter just because like he seems like he always puts his foot in his mouth. Like literally a few verses before this, uh, Jesus is telling him he's going to die and be raised in three days. And, G- and Peter's like, no, you're not. I'm not going to let that happen, you know? And then he says, get behind me, Satan. Like, man, this is, Jesus is very direct with Peter sometimes. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, I know the plan here. And Jesus is like, you shut up, you know? Um, but I think I'm pretty much as dumb as Peter, so it's, it's cool. Um, Peter is always wanting to do the work in the way that he knows to do it. That's what I notice about Peter, and that's what I notice about me. Because we have this spectacular scene, right? Like, Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah, and he's shining. And I think, you know, you would think highly of yourself, and you think, like, my reaction would probably be to just be quiet and watch, you know? But no, Peter has to talk, right? He's like, hey, uh, over here, can I have some attention? I'm going to build a tent for you guys, you know? And I think that this is, once again, Peter trying to do things the way that they've always been done. And he's trying to do what they would do when they would erect a tabernacle as a place of worship to God, and then that would be a place that the people would dwell for a while. And so he's like, this is pretty cool. How about we erect some tabernacles? You guys can live in them. We'll stay here. We'll keep doing this Jesus, Moses, Elijah thing. We'll do it for a long time. And Jesus is like, no, you have no idea. It actually even just says he had no idea what he was talking about. Or I don't know how it phrases it, but that's basically what the Bible says. And I think that Jesus just, actually it says that God interrupts him, okay? It says that while Peter is talking, all of a sudden um, a cloud starts building. And it depends kind of which book of the Bible you read this in. But it appears that it actually interrupts Peter talking, like, no one gives him an answer. It's just like, all of a sudden, this cloud starts enveloping them. And he's like, okay, I should probably be quiet. Um, and so, then this really cool thing happens where this cloud comes all around them. And God begins to talk. And he says, um, he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And we have another parallel scripture here. 
if you, if you look through the Bible, it's just constant. That the, the scriptures and things that happen in the story, that God is echoing something that he already did in the past. He really likes to leave us these, tr- these trails of breadcrumbs so that we know we're in the right place and we're on the right path. And so this is almost a direct reference back to Jesus' baptism. So when Jesus is going to start his ministry, it seems that the Father wants to encourage him. And so we have this moment where the entire Trinity is actually present in one moment, where we have Jesus present, we have the the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and then we have the Father actually say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then if we fast forward to the transfiguration, Jesus is about to go through the hardest time of his life. And so it seems like once again, the father says, you know what, one more time, I'm going to let him know and I'm going to let everybody else know that he is my one. He's the guy. There's nobody else. He's the guy. And so once again, we have all three of the Trinity, I believe, present in this moment. All of a sudden it says a cloud starts to envelop them. Well, do you know what the spirit of God often uh, appeared as in the Old Testament, he appeared as a cloud, right? And so I think when this cloud starts overwhelming them, I think they're pretty overwhelmed. I think this is basically the Holy Spirit presenting himself in physical form and in, in surrounding them. And then they've just seen Jesus shining, and now they hear the, the Father say, it's only slightly different. It's, uh, this is my this is my son, my chosen one. And then instead of saying, in whom I'm well pleased, he says, listen to him. Okay? So it seems like the first time is mostly like God affirming Jesus as he goes into ministry. And this time God's affirming Jesus again, but then he's telling everybody else, you better listen to what he has to say because he's still the one. If you didn't get it the first time, let me show you again. The Trinity's real. This, this whole thing's really, really deep and he's the one. Okay? So don't miss it. I think that what we have to take, just generally speaking, and I know I'm, I'm just kind of repeating the same things over and over in some ways, but I want to because I want us to get the point. I think that what God's getting at here is, number one, he's going to restore all things, and we should trust him to do it. Okay? Like, even when Peter jumps in and starts trying to, to do it, you know, it's like, no, 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 you're not the one who's going to do it. You're not the one who's going to fulfill the law. You're not the one who's going to fulfill God's word in your life. Okay? That's just a quick aside. Like, I'm trying not to do a lot of, uh, a lot of life application during Lent. We try to kind of stay in the story. But if I can give you one quick aside, like, you are not going to be good enough to fulfill the law. You're, you're never going to be good enough. And you are not going to fulfill God's words or prophecies in your life. God has to do it. The more you hold on to it and try to like make it happen and like, oh, God said this, so like I'm going to make it happen, it's probably not going to work. God is the one who fulfills the law. God is the one who fulfills the prophets. And it's all found in the person of Jesus. So God will restore all things. And like Jordan talked about last week, we should trust in him. Jesus will restore all things. We should trust in him. Second thing is that God gives us glimpses of Jesus so that we know where to keep our focus and so that we will be encouraged through difficult times. 
And so my encouragement to you today is very simply to, as we sang, to not lose your wonder. To actually keep your focus on this glorified Jesus. I mean, like, for them, he hasn't come yet. For us, he's come, okay? Like, I know we're still, like, stuck in Lent, and we're doing part of the story. But for us, we hold this tension of, like, yeah, we're, we're kind of, like, walking slowly through the story and letting ourselves experience it. But, like, we still know that, like, the resurrected Jesus is real at this point, okay? And so, whatever is happening as you go through the season and as you let God work out the difficult things in you and as you participate willingly in a time that will actually kind of, like, can be gut-wrenching, then I encourage you, keep your eyes fixed on the perfected one and what is to come, which is that God is going to restore all things, including your life, into his perfect plan. I'm going to finish with this, with this idea. As we go through Lent, we must hold at the same time the triumphant Jesus whose father is announcing him, is announcing him while he shines on a mountain. And in the other hand, we must hold the silent Jesus hanging on a cross. Right? We must hold the the transfigured Jesus in all his glory. And in the other hand, at the same time, we have to hold the Jesus that these same three disciples actually will soon see in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus calls them away and they get to see him transfigured in all his glory. And then Jesus calls them away and at the same time, they, once again, they can't stay awake, right? And then, and then what they see is, is Jesus crushed. And I know that we're not to that point of the story yet, but it's just really difficult paradox to hold. And it is the beauty of the gospel. It's literally, it's the beauty of Jesus that there's so much paradox that instead of, in order to, to cure the world, that he comes into our pain, right? Not fixing it from afar, but comes into our pain, that he participates in it. But on the other hand, we have this glorified, majestic Christ who's going to reign for all eternity. And if we lose the paradox of that, if we lose the beauty of who Jesus Christ is, then we will miss all of the importance of this Lent season. The person of Jesus is what we have to be fixed on. We have to let the Spirit show us Jesus clearly in all the paradoxes and lead us not into the world's wisdom, but into all of his wisdom, into all of his truth. And so, um, in, in, a, in just a couple minutes, we're going um, to take communion. And um, I just want to invite you guys, before we do that, we're going to take one moment of silence. And I just want to invite you to focus on the transfigured, the glorified Jesus in your heart as we move further into the season of Lent. So let's just do that now. Just close your eyes, fix your, your heart on him, and just ask him to show you to give you a glimpse of his glory that will carry you through the season.